Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, October 22nd, 2017. The share IDs for Friday, October 20th are, for the 7 a.m. Eastern meeting, 10571. That's 10,571. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 10572. 10,572. This morning, A Vision for You presents Big Book Warnings and Death Threats. The first members of Alcoholics Anonymous relied on a word-of-mouth program to stay sober. As the fellowship grew and spread to distant cities, the AA pioneers were afraid that their program would get seriously distorted in its constant retelling. They decided to write down what they had learned in a book to be given to new members. The forward to the first edition of the big book states, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. On page 19, the big book states, we shall bring to task our combined experience and knowledge. Essentially, the AA pioneers penned what worked and what did not work what resulted in recovery, and what failed. The big book is very clear that the program does include must, have-tos, and definite requirements if you want the full desired result. The big book also includes the focus of today's presentation, warnings and death threats. Joining us today to bring that aspect of our text to life is Kim G, a recovered compulsive reader from New Jersey. Kim is dedicated to the 12-step way of life, which of course includes carrying this message of recovery. Welcome to you, Kim. Good morning, Leah. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. And for those of you who don't know me, I just wanted to qualify that I've been in OA since 1994, and I've been recovered since January 2011. You know, my disease has manifested in many different ways. At my top weight in my early 20s, I was a size 24. I was diagnosed morbidly obese. I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs without having to catch my breath, and my doctor was threatening to put me on high blood pressure medication. I've also been bulimic, where I've been binging and purging and over-exercising to the point that I would run, you know, 10, 12 miles on a Saturday morning and not be able to walk till Sunday night. I also died my way down to a size 2, where my hair was falling out and my period had ceased to, to happen. So I just want to say that because I want to say that, that, you know, I understand this disease in all its facets. You know, for many years in, in Overeaters Anonymous, um, most meetings that I went to ended with the promises. And I have to tell you, I never understood, I never was told that they were linked to the steps. I was just told these were the promises. And in the promises, it says, before we are halfway through. And unfortunately, the message that I heard, I don't even know if it was what was specifically said, but what I heard was the solution to my compulsive overeating was a 90 and 90. So what I believed was that I would get these promises at day 45. That makes sense. I'm halfway through my 90 and 90. You know, and the promises are great. But I have to tell you what motivated me was my pain. 
And I had to be fully acquainted with what I suffered from and the consequences if I didn't do the work. And the reason I wanted to do this presentation was because one of my spiritual mentors that I've had um, from my, my years of recovery, he often will say, you know what? We need to stop effing reading the promises and pay more attention to the death threats. And that's what I did. I started to pay attention to what was going to happen if I didn't do this work. So I'm going to try to go through these first 164 pages, and I'm just going to bring out some of these death threats that tell us, if you are a compulsive overreader of the type described in this book, what will happen to you if you do not pay attention to these threats, to these warnings? And I'm going to, you know, I don't know it's going to be difficult to follow me because I'm going to be going, but I'm going to be giving you page numbers. So even before the book starts, in the forward to the second edition on page XVI, or XVII, the top of the page, it says, it is indicated that strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, was vital to permanent recovery. And I had to ask myself, did I want that? Did I want permanent recovery? Because if I did, I was going to have to do strenuous work. I'm going to have to work with others, and it's vital. It's a daily vital prescription that I need to take. So let's get into the doctor's opinion, which tells us what do we suffer from. This is going to give us that medical diagnosis. And it is telling us on XXVI, in the first paragraph after Dr. William Silkworth signs his name, it says, in this statement, and Bill is interceding here between the two doctor's letters, it says, in this statement, he confirms, this doctor confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as normal as his mind. If I don't believe that, I'm not going to understand the importance of abstinence. And in this chapter, I personally see four places in the doctor's opinion that it tells me I must put this food down. There is a controversy in the fellowship about whether I need to get abstinent to work these steps, but there is no controversy in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm not going to give the page numbers, but I'm going to tell you what, what, what the book tells us. It says, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached as he has a better chance of understanding and accepting what he has to offer. It also tells us, of course an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. And even when Dr. Silkworth has said, okay, what is the solution? He can't even describe it. So what he does is he gives examples of two patients to try to to let people know what happened to these men. And in both of those descriptions, in the first man, he says, following the elimination of alcohol, then he accepted the outline in this book. And the next gentleman, following his physical rehabilitation, he became sold on the ideas in this book. So he's stressing the fact that you have to get clean prior to embarking on the spiritual program of, absence, of recovery. And we're told two different things. We're told we have an allergy of the body, which means once I ingest certain substances, I cannot reasonably predict how much I'm going to have. And it's not all food. It's certain food. It's certain ingredients. It's certain behaviors. And they let me know in that chapter that the only relief they have to suggest, meaning they don't have any other suggestions, not that it's suggested, but there's no other suggestion 
If I have this allergy, the only suggestion they have is entire abstinence, not partial abstinence, not sloppy abstinence, not imperfect abstinence, but entire abstinence. And if I want freedom from the mental obsession, because as bad as that allergy is, the problem is even when that allergy is not being triggered, even when my body is okay that it doesn't have those substances in there, I have a mind that will always convince me to go back to that food. So how do I treat that mind? And the doctor's opinion tells me that I'm going to repeat this, this, um, this disease process over and over and over unless this person can experience an entire psychic change. There is very little hope of his recovery. Not a partial change, not doing the OA waltz of steps one, two, three, not doing step work just during the week, not taking off for holidays or our birthday, but to have an entire psychic change, which means I have to do all 12 steps and that I have to make it a part of my daily living. So let's go into Bill's story. And Bill's story, after he goes through this process, or as he's going through it, we're going to see places where it's going to tell us about Bill's experience. So if we go to the bottom of page 12, after he has been, been um, starting to question this idea that Ebby's presenting to him, that he needs a power greater than himself, and he's questioning his old ideas. He's questioning his prejudices from his childhood. At the bottom, last paragraph on page 12, it says, For a brief moment I had needed and wanted God. There had been a humble willingness to have him with me, and he came. But soon the sense of his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors, mostly those within myself. So I think that this was my own experience. I can come and I can attend a vision for you every day and be inspired that one hour. But you know what takes me down? The other 23 hours. I might even travel to the Vision for You retreat in Newark or go to a local retreat or listen to an incredible podcast online from any type of spiritual teacher and I can feel lifted up. But the problem is when I'm not listening to that and those worldly clamors come in, I need a defense against those worldly clamors. And then after he's had this spiritual experience, on top of 14, it lets me know, simple but not easy, a price had to be paid for this recovery. A price had to be paid. I always heard simple but not easy in the OA rooms and in most 12-step rooms, but that's, not, that's kind of taking it out of context. What is the full context of simple but not easy? A price had to be paid. It meant the destruction of self-centeredness. And how does that happen? I have to go through with the rest of the steps. This is an ego reduction process. I was taught early in my recovery, this is not a self-help program. This is a self-abandonment program. And I am unable to do that with my own thinking. So at the bottom of 14, Bill is... is Reiterating again what his friend Ebby told him. So at the bottom of 14, it says, my friend emphasized the absolute necessity, absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. I don't have the luxury of working these principles in the OA rooms where you people love and understand me. Where my real work is, is in my job, in my family, and in the outside world. Particularly, it was imperative, imperative to work with others. You know, I really thought that sponsoring was optional, that the gurus in OA would do the sponsoring. He's letting us know here, it is imperative I work with others. I often hear people say they're afraid to sponsor. And my response is, I would be afraid not to sponsor. 
the bottom, the last line on page 14. If an, al- for if an alcoholic fails to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots, certain. If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. There, this absolute language is so consistent through the big book. And I've often heard, I've got to enlarge my spiritual life, but I have to look at what that means in the context of this big book. You know, I would hear enlarge my spiritual life, and I think, okay, well, if I go into a room and I sit in a, in a, in a cross-legged position and listen to Buddhist monks chanting, and I, I sit there and I try to meditate, that's enlarging my spiritual life. And that is a way to do it in a, in a, in a general way. But what does it mean in, in the big book way, in the, in the 12-step way? It says, I enlarge my spiritual life through work, which to me is the inventory process of 10 and 11, which means I had to go through 4 through 9 to learn how to do that, and self-sacrifice for others, which means I have to work and I have to help other compulsive overeaters. Let's turn to page 16. They're reiterating this again on on the um, second to last paragraph. Faith has to work 24 hours a day in and through us, or we perish. So I ha- this is a 24-7, 365-day-a-year program. And what are the consequences? If I don't utilize this program in and through me, I will perish. And now let's go into the chapter, There is a Solution. That first page talks about this analogy of us being in a, in a, a shipwreck. And here's a, a warning that it's going to give us. At the bottom of the second paragraph, it says, the feeling that having shared in the common parable is one element in the powerful cement which binds us. But that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. I have to tell you, once again, my personal experience in OA is many meetings are only joined on this one powerful cement that binds us. We're joined on the problem. You know, unfortunately, I've been to many meetings in my area that, Nobody is abstinent. There's no abstinence requirement to lead the meeting. There is no abstinence requirement even to sponsor. And we are people that are bound by the idea that we suffer from this illness, but we have no way out. So what is it that we need to be bound on? The next paragraph tells us that. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we've discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. So I need to ask myself in my meetings, in my inner group, in my region, in world service, is that what our common bond is? Is that the message of hope and possibility? Are our meetings really binding on Tradition 5 where we are focused on the solution? And one more time on page 19, it's going to kick us in the butt about the starting process. In the first paragraph, we feel that elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. Once again, my experience was that, especially in the 90s, was that the goal was abstinence. I was supposed to work the steps to get abstinence. And this book is real clear that the elimination of my drinking is but a beginning. But a beginning. I have to be asked to do these steps. So let's move to page 23, and it talks about these observations. And what are these observations? The first paragraph. These observations are of the allergy, and we're going to see a switch after page 23, away from the allergy towards the mental obsession. 
So it says these observations of the allergy would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. Now, we can see that this, we're going to start switching to that, okay, that we are a baffled lot, that we're sometimes, we're going to figure out a way to beat that game if we do not treat the mental obsession. So on page 25, it's going to tell us, what is that solution to that mental obsession? The first paragraph on page 25, there is a solution. None, said Almost none of us liked. That was another thing. I thought I had to like it. Once again, my experience, I remember coming to the rooms and saying, you know what, go to six meetings and see how you feel. Get comfortable first. Get abstinence, get comfortable in your abstinence, and then maybe we'll tell you about these steps. The fact is, that's my problem. I can't get comfortable with abstinence. Abstinence is my real problem. And it doesn't matter if I like it or not. In fact, most of us don't like it. But if that doesn't, that doesn't um, liking it is not a requirement to do the work. We do not like doing that. We're doing it because we have to. And it says at the, at the bottom, it says, I'm sorry, the same paragraph, what is the um, solution, the self-searching, which for me is step four, the leveling of our pride, steps five through seven, and the confession of our shortcomings, step eight through nine, which this process requires for a successful consummation. We often hear everything is suggestions, and it's absolutely true. You can sit in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous and never do a darn thing. You can pick and choose what you want to do. But if you want successful consummation, there are some requirements. There are musts, there are always, there are have-tos, there are nevers. And I have to ask myself, am I willing to settle for temporary respites, or do I want successful consummation? So how do I know if I need this program? On page 24, it really talks about that. It talks about in that squiggly paragraph, what, is the, what does a real compulsive overeater look like? And what I've been told, I have lost the power of choice. My so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. I am unable at certain times to bring into the consciousness with sufficient force the memory and suffering and humiliation of even a week or month ago. So if I am a compulsive overeater of the type described in this book, I have no choice, no power, and no memory. And at the bottom of page 25, this is where we're going to get if we, have, if we are a compulsive overeater of this type. It talks about being as seriously alcoholic as we were. Do we believe this? It says we had but two alternatives. Now, alternative is different than choice. Alternative means I'm doing one or the other. I can't sit still when, when this disease has, it, has me by its throat. One is to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of my intolerable situation as best we could, and the other was to go for spiritual help. And as long as I believed that an intolerable situation was being in the food, then my goal was to get abstinent. But when I really understood through the teachings in this book that the intolerable situation is being abstinent, let me tell you, if you're a real compulsive overeater, abstinence sucks. I mean, you want me to be abstinent in the morning, in the afternoon, and the evening? When I heard back-to-back abstinence, I wanted to bitch slap somebody. That seems insane. And when I'm in that intolerable situation, I have two alternatives. I'm either going to blot out the consciousness and means I'm going to pick up the food, or I'm going to seek spiritual help and I'm going to pick up the steps. 
So that is the warning. Am I going to go back to the food or am I going to seek the spiritual solution that might scare the heck out of me? But it's my only hope of recovering from this disease. So let's go into the chapter more about alcoholism. And this is the chapter that tells me why I need to come to L.A. Because believe me, if the allergy was the only problem, then rehabs would kick out 100% recovery. Because regardless of what your addiction is, if you're put in a rehab for 30 days, 60 days, and they remove that substance from your body, and your body is no longer demanding it, someone could have a rational conversation with you and say, look at the consequences of your drinking, your eating, your drugging. Don't do that. Nancy Reagan would have helped people. Just say no. I could be scared straight. But the problem is I have this mental obsession that will not allow me to get comfortable in abstinence and will always tell me, come on, you're making way too big a deal out of this. You are not going to binge this time. You just need to take the edge off. For Christ's sake, it's just a holy bagel. Don't get so worked up over this. So we're going to be confronted on 30 and 31 about our real problem. But I have this illusion that I can control and enjoy my eating. I have this delusion that I can eat like other people. And eventually they're going to tell me that I'm insane. Not insane in everything in my life, but I'm insane when it comes to the food. And they're in that one paragraph, they're going to say the word control, control, control. Because that's what I'm trying to get back, that I'm incapable of if I have this mental obsession. So on page 33, in the first full paragraph, the last sentence, and the word if is really important because that's a condition. If we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. I mean, that honestly was my diet mentality. I will diet and deprive myself because I'm going to be in this wedding only because when the wedding is over, I can eat. Every conventional diet program tells us if we deprive ourselves, then we can go back and we can moderately eat our binge foods. I have heard OA meetings talk about that. You, if you're willing to deprive yourself till you get to step 12, then God will help you to moderately eat. If you are a compulsive overeater of the type in this book, they are warning us right here. If you are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday you will be immune to alcohol. And they're going to reiterate that again on page 34, that second full paragraph. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. I have to be convinced that I am unable to eat moderately my binge foods, my binge ingredients, and engage in my binge behaviors. And it's saying whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. So you know what? We have a third tradition that allows anyone to come into Overeaters Anonymous. And my experience is we have a lot of moderate eaters and heavy eaters in Overeaters Anonymous. And if someone can come into OA and we can hand them a food plan and they can simply do the tools and they can be happy, joyous, and free, that is a non-spiritual basis. And good for them. And welcome to Overeaters Anonymous. But I have to understand who I am. If I am a compulsive overeater of the type described in this book, I cannot get happy, joyous, and free on a non-spiritual basis. They're warning me. If I have this disease, 
And I've lost the power of choice to drink, meaning once I ingest it, I, my body will demand I have it. And when I'm abstinent, my mind will convince me and I am beyond choice to take that first bite. And they're going to give us four examples in this, in this chapter about not people that are drunk and side can't get sober, but these are people that are sober. The allergy is not a factor here, and yet they still choose to pick up. And the one I love is Jim versus Fred. Because, see, I really thought I was an emotional eater. I thought I ate because of the circumstances of my life, which is what I tried to control. But Jim is someone who loses everyone, absolutely everyone, everything, I'm sorry, everything, and he picks up. But Jim, but Fred has, life is going his way, and he still picks up. And I started to recognize I could not coordinate my life in such a way that I'm not going to want to eat. So they're telling us on the bottom of page 41, and this is for Fred's story, and here's a promise, an ominous promise, at the bottom of the page, four lines up. I now remember what my friends, alcoholic friends had told me, how they prophesied. So they promised that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come, I would drink again. They said that though I did raise a defense, it would one day give way for some trivial reason for having a drink. Well, just that did happen for me and more. For what I had learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from that moment I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blind spots. I had never been able to understand people who said they had a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. So as I finish up these step one chapters, I really personally thought that step one said, I can't eat. Don't eat, go to meetings. Don't eat, go to meetings. What I am taught in these chapters and what I had to internalize in my own experience was step one doesn't say don't drink. Step one says you're going to drink, you're going to drink, you're going to drink unless you have a spiritual experience. So let's go into the agnostics, which is step two, and that first paragraph is going to slam that home because they're going to ask us two simple questions. In the first paragraph, fourth line down, if when you honestly want to, you cannot quit entirely, which means I can't stay absent contently, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take, which means you have the allergy of the body. It says you are probably alcoholic. Now, this is Kim coming in. They're saying, or if it's and, you are a compulsive overeater, in my opinion. It says, if that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only, only a spiritual experience can conquer. So the bad news is, that only a spiritual experience will help you. But the good news is that spiritual experience will conquer it. I do not need to suffer from compulsive overeating anymore if I get that spiritual experience. So let's go to page 45, because that's going to tell us what our real problem is here. That first full paragraph, lack of power, that was my dilemma. It was not lack of knowledge. It was not lack of intellect. It was not a lack of how many meetings I have in a week. It was not lack of having the right sponsor. It was not lack of having the wrong food plan. It was lack of power was my dilemma. I had to find a power by which I could live, not a power by which I could eat. I needed a power by which I could live so I could get comfortable in my abstinence. And if I got comfortable in my abstinence, I wouldn't want to eat. So what is stopping me from doing that? Let's go to page 48. 
first line at the top. We often found ourselves handicapped by obstinacy, by sensitiveness, by unreasoning prejudice. Many of us have been so touchy that even a casual reference to spiritual things made us bristle with antagonism. This sort of thinking had to be abandoned. This whole chapter is about opening my mind. What am I handicapped by? Handicapped, the definition, a condition which markedly restricts my ability to function. I'm handicapped by my obstinacy, by my arrogance, by my pop, by my pride, my sensitiveness. I personalized everything. Everything felt like a, like a personal attack in my life. And by unreasoning prejudice. And prejudice is simply my old ideas. What did I think Overeaters Anonymous was? What did I think God was? What did I think a diet was? All those things were blocking me. All that thinking had to be abandoned. Not that it had to be reconsidered. Not that I had to kind of, you know, tweak it a little bit. It had to be abandoned. And on page 53, in that second full paragraph, it says, when we became crushed, when we became alcoholics, crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could not postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or God is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What is our choice to be? Once again, two, two alternatives. And that word God can bring up a lot of prejudices. And the way that I internalize that now and I had to internalize it when I was at this point in my recovery was this 12-step way of life is everything or it's nothing. I have to be all in. I don't get to pick and choose where I apply my 12-step way of life. If I want to be recovered, if I want permanent recovery, I have to dedicate my life to the directions in this book and to this 12-step way of life. And how do I do that? On page 55, it tells me what attitude I have to have. So if we go down to one, two, three, the fourth full paragraph on page 55, it says we can only clear the ground for our bit. If our testimony helps sweep away prejudice, enables you to think honestly, encourages you to search diligently within yourself, and if you wish, you can join us on the broad highway. With this attitude, you cannot fail. So what is the attitude? I have to sweep away my prejudices. I have to think honestly. I have to search diligently within myself. And my experience from working with people and my own experience is that we complicate the heck out of step two. I don't need to know God. I don't, in fact, I can't. I don't need to define God. I don't have to figure out characteristics of God. Let me tell you, on page 52, it's simply my step two. One, two, the third full paragraph. We saw others solve their problems. That's the last two sentences. Our ideas did not work, but the God idea did. I was convinced by my own step one experiences and the prior chapters that my ideas were not going to work. I was going to die in this disease. And I saw these recovered people, and I believed that they were once like me, and I believed that they no longer suffered. And my belief that this spiritual life worked for them was enough for me to take step two. I didn't need to stay in it any longer than that. So let's move on to the chapter, How It Works, which is steps three and four. On page 58 and 59, a couple things here. It says, the results were nil until we let go absolutely Half measures availed us nothing. This is a warning. I love the analogy of the vending machine. If my favorite binge food is in a vending machine and it costs $1, I fully accept it costs 
I am not under the delusion that if I put 50 cents in there, I'm going to get this candy bar. I'm not under the delusion even if I put 99 cents in there, I'm going to get the candy bar. I'm not under the delusion if I put 60 cents in there, maybe they'll give me a quarter of a candy bar. I fully concede that if I want that candy bar, I need that dollar. And let me tell you, if I want that candy bar, I am searching in the couches of my house to find that change. I need to seek the spiritual solution with the same intensity that I would seek that dollar from my favorite binge food. And in the second line on page 59, it says, there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now, not next week, not next month, not when you get comfortable, not when you have 30 days, 90 days of, of abstinence. We need to find that power now. So step three for me, my old prejudice was, I thought step three was basically like Santa Claus. I was going to turn my life and my will over to a power greater than myself. I was going to give God this laundry list of things he's supposed to do and what order and what people. And when he didn't do what I wanted to do, I was going to, quote, unquote, take my will back. That is me playing God. Step three, pages 60 to 63, are going to tell me, what is life like when Kim's in charge? What is life like when Kim is the manager of her life? And I'm going to come to that conclusion that I suck. I suck as a manager. So on page 60, it talks about the first requirement, the bottom of the page, is we can convince that any lifelong self-will can hardly be a success. And what does self-will look like? On page 61, that first full paragraph is a bunch of questions. What is my basic trouble? These questions are the telling me, how does, how does life work when I am making decisions based on self? In my best moments, I'm a I'm producer of confusion rather than, than, than uh, Confusion rather than harmony. And what, 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 how does this manifest? On page 62, we're, we're confronted with the real problem, that I'm selfish, that I'm self-centered, that I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear, that my troubles are basically of my own ma- making. And it's warning me, I must be rid of this selfishness or it kills me. It's, 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 it's um, warning me that I can have moral philosophical convictions galore, but I cannot live up to them. I heard a speaker say recently, I love this. He said, in religion, they tell you, here are the principles, do them. But in AA, they tell us, here are the principles. You don't have the power to do them, which is why I need to do these steps to seek this power. And they warn me again, I have to quit playing God. This is confronting you with what is life like when I'm in charge. I am now making a decision to turn away from Kim's will to seek the will of a power greater than myself. I don't turn anything over in step three. What I'm doing is I'm making a decision to learn a skill set in four through nine, which I'm going to implement in 10 and 11, and that's where I turn my will over. And they're going to give us a warning at the top of page 64, the first line on 64, that our decision was a vital and crucial step. It could have little permanent effect unless at once, at once, by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. We had to get down to causes and conditions. So now we're going to get into step four. This is the beginning of the inventory process. Once again, my old prejudice, I thought the inventory was step four. The inventory process is four through nine. So they're warning us on page 64, that first paragraph. A business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. So me, this is the precursor. Going through the inventory process 
might get me unblocked, but I will not stay unblocked unless I have a regular inventory. And how do I do that? I do 10 and 11. Now, some people will play with semantics. Some people say they live in, they live in 10, 11, and 12. Some people go back and do periodic 4 through 9. Who cares? Call it what you want. But you better take regular inventory or you're going to go back to the food. And we have three inventories we're looking at. It's saying being convinced that self manifested in various ways is what has defeated us, we consider its common manifestations. Those manifestations are resentments, they're fear, and then our sex conduct or how we deal with relationships. And on page 64, that last paragraph, resentment is the number one defender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. Once again, destroys, not fathers. Not, you know, kind of gets on my nerves once in a while. It will destroy me. And the top of 66, my, once again, my personal experience, it explained to me why the doing inventories besides the big book method never worked for me. Because, see, my inventories were normally autobiographies. I would write about my life and how miserable I was, and I thought that would make me feel better. And my, my real goal at that point was I was going to make my sponsor pity me, and I was going to make her hate the people on my resentment list as much as I hated them. And what the result was is that I reinforced my resentments, I reinforced my fears, and I reinforced my sex conduct. So it's warning us at the top of 66, if I stay in those first three columns of who I'm mad at, why I'm mad at it, and how it affected me, what's going to happen? It says to conclude that others were wrong was as far as, us, as most of us ever got. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we continued to stay sore. Next paragraph, it is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. To the precise extent that we permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile. How can I fully live in, 19, in 2017 if I'm still dragging around 1985? And they're warning us again at the bottom of that page as I'm going through this process, we begin to see that, that it's people really dominated us. In that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real, had the power to actually kill. This is why I have to go through this process in order to get rid of these resentments. And they let us know that resentments can be mastered, that I don't have to live with that. Then we go into this fear inventory on 6 and 7, and it warns us it is an evil and corroding thread. And what, what is the problem there on page 68, that second paragraph? Perhaps there's a better way, so now we are on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. When I'm reliant on me, I'm in calamity. When I'm reliant on a power greater than myself, I'm in serenity. No other choices. Fear is a sure sign that I'm relying on my own power. And as we finish up this four-step inventory on page 70, it's going to warn us what happens if we don't follow through with the rest of the steps. So on page 70, the first full paragraph, suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Does this mean we're going to get drunk? Some people tell us so. But this is only a half-truth. It depends on us and our motives. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and we have learned our lesson. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are sure to get drunk. We are not theorizing. 
These are facts out of our own experience. For me, I always think of gossip. That was something that really dominated my life. I went through this inventory. I saw the destructiveness. I made my amends. And my, does that mean I've never gossiped? No, I've gossiped. But I immediately go back and I make an amends. I work it through this inventory process. And, and that allows me to get past that. But if I decide, screw you, I have some stuff going on at work today, this right now that is, is not good. And if I said, screw you, I'm going to get caught up in that gossip at work because people are justifiably angry. But I know for me as a compulsive overeater, I can't sit in that anger. And if I choose to go into that anger and gossip, what's going to happen? My brain's going to need relief. And since I'm not getting relief from the steps, my brain is going to default back to the only other place I ever got relief, which is in the food. And I just want to mention before we go to the next chapter, one of the mistakes I made was we learn prayers in the fourth step. We have a sick man's prayer for resentment, a fear prayer for the fear, and we have three prayers in the sex conduct, which are now relationship prayers to me. I left them in step four. These are not four-step prayers. These are prayers that we learn in the fourth step, and we continue to use them for the rest of our life. So now let's get into the chapter um, um, into action, which is actually 5 through 11. So the pace is picking up at this point. So there's an urgency to get through this. We need this spiritual awakening and we're going to eat again. And on page 72, that second paragraph, it says, in actual practice, we find a solitary self-appraisal insufficient. I mean, come on. In step 5, it says, right, another we we take this in, you know, um, oh goodness, I forget the wording. Hold on. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrong. Well, two out of three ain't bad, right? I can admit it to myself and to God. I don't need to include anybody else. But they're letting me know a solitary self-appraisal is insufficient because I can't be objective about my own life. I'm too invested in it. And this is not only true in step five. This is it's true in step ten. That's why I need recovered people in my life. And it says, what if I don't do that? Couple ones down. If we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. I often lose people in step four. If we don't continue on and to do the rest of the steps, a lot of people will stumble at this point. So what happens? On page 73, it's going to be another warning. It talks about in that first full paragraph, like most people, the alcoholic lives a double life. He wants to enjoy a certain reputation, but knows in his heart he doesn't deserve it. What happens if that inconsistency keeps moving on? It says in that third paragraph last line, he is under constant fear and tension that makes for more drinking. So in other words, if I don't have this spiritual awakening, if I don't get free from these resentments, these fears, these relationships, and that constant fear and tension is on my back, that mental twist will get louder and louder. Because I don't know about you guys, but when I put down the food, life gets loud. And I shut it up by eating again. I need to shut that that down another way, and that is what the step work is for. So let's move to pages, page 76. Let's look at step nine, another place I lose a lot of people, and there's a lot of warnings in there, and I don't think that's unusual. Most people I talk to who work with people, we lose people in four to five, we lose people in nine, and we lose people at 12. So on page 76, one, two, three, the third full paragraph that starts out, now we need more action. The last sentence of that, chat, of that paragraph. Remember, remember, it was agreed at the beginning we would go to any length for victory over alcohol. At the bottom of page 77, 
four lines up from the, from the bottom of the page. Simply, we tell them we will never, never get over drinking until we have done our utmost to straighten out the past. Page 78. The second paragraph, most alcoholics owe money. Last sentence, we must lose our fear of creditors no matter how far we have to go, for we are liable to drink if we are afraid to face them. I always point out, it doesn't say I have to pay the money back in order to be free. I have to lose my fear, which means I have to address my debt, whether I can pay $10 a month or I can pay back the amount, full amount. It's the fear of the creditors which is going to take me down. At the top of page 79, that first full paragraph, reminding ourselves we've decided to go to any length to find a spiritual experience. And then on page 80, one, two, three, the fourth paragraph down, about in the middle of, the middle of that paragraph, he saw he had to overcome, out, he, to place the outcome into God's hands or he would soon start drinking again and all would be lost. That's a lot of warnings in just one step. And let's, let's go um, to page, see, oh, and then on the top of page 80, they're telling us before we make an amends, here's a warning, before taking drastic action, which might implicate other people, we secure their consent. Here we have three things we have to do. We have to obtain permission, we have to consult with others, and we must not shrink. A lot of preparation is needed for those nine steps, which is why we need recovered people in our life. And on page 83, this is not one and done. This is not the fact that we can just say, I'm sorry, you know, a remorseful mumbling will not fit the bill. It's letting us know on the top of page 83, yes, there is a period of construction ahead, a long period of construction. We must take the lead. And then that next paragraph, the spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. Knowing this book is not enough. Being able to memorize this book is not enough. I have to apply this book. I can read all the books about skiing. I can watch movies on skiing, watch the Olympics on skiing. Until I get my butt on skis, it's just a theory. And then it's warning us at the end of that same paragraph, our behavior will convince him more than our words. We must remember that 10 or 20 years of drunkenness will make a skeptic out of anyone. I love the saying, your actions are so loud, I cannot hear a word that you are saying. And for me specifically, having been in LA for for decades in and out of relapse, why would anyone in my life believe this time is different? It is my actions they're going to believe. I need to be consistent in my action in order to be believed. So let's go into page 84, which is step 10. So letting us know here on the second full paragraph, it says, we vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. Once again, an old prejudice. I'm looking at the steps on the wall. I see nine, and then I see ten, and I think I have to finish nine before I start ten. Start ten. Life is still happening. I have to vigorously, vigorously commence this way of living as I cleaned up the past. This is a continuous process. My next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not about maintenance. I need to grow. It talks four times in that paragraph. Continue, continue, continue to continue. This is this is the way I visualize it. As a compulsive overeater, as an addict, I am walking up a down escalator. If I stop moving, that escalator will pull me down. Now, maybe that's not fair. Most people get to walk up the up escalator. But I have to know who I am. I am a compulsive overeater of the type described in this book. 
And if I am not continuously doing this work, if I'm not continuously putting one foot in front of the other on that escalator, I am going to be pulled down. And then on page 85, we have the 10-step warnings. And they're saying, as wonderful as it is that we have this recovered state, these promises are coming true. I'm not cocky or afraid. I am in, a, yeah, I am in neutrality, safe and protected. The obsession's been removed. They're warning me in that first paragraph, it's easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on my laurels, my past achievements. I used to think most people picked up when something bad happened. I have to tell you my experience now, a lot of people pick up when things are going well. If I'm getting my way, who the heck needs to do step work? Who the heck needs God? I'm, getting, I'm, I'm good at this point. And I let up on my spiritual condition, and then something little happens, and something big happens, and I'm facing the food, and I wonder what happens. Because they're warning us here, we are not cured. What we have is a daily reprieve, contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. I cannot get clean on yesterday's shower. I don't know about you guys, but I never woke up from a really good binge on a Sunday night and Monday morning thought, woo, I'm good till Thursday. Don't need to binge till Thursday. I had to binge every day. What makes me think I can get up on a, on a Monday morning after the Vision for You retreat and never go, woo, I'm good. Don't need to do any spiritual work now for a while. I can just live off that spiritual spirit experience in Newark. I need to be doing this practice every day. And then it goes into step 11. And step 11 is three practices. It's an evening routine, a morning routine, and pausing throughout the day. So for those of us, which I said many years, I'm living in 10, 11, and 12. And my, my step 11 was simply saying the, the um, serenity prayer 40 times a day. If I'm not doing all three practices, I'm not doing step 12, and I'm vulnerable to, this, to, this, uh, to the mental twist. So in the evening, I'm reviewing. I'm taking that four through nine skill set, and I'm looking at my day, and I'm looking for those patterns, and I'm asking what could I have done better, what corrective measures should be taken so that I can continue to grow. In the morning, I'm proactively asking God in. I love the line that I'm, that I'm asking to be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. If I know those defects are going to trip me up, why do I even have to wait till they happen? What do you divorce? You divorce something you once loved. This was the way that I live. And I need to be separated from those defects in order to live a recovered life. Then we're going to pause throughout the day. It's a spiritual barometer. You know, I'm checking in how connected I am because if I get disconnected, the, spirit, the, um, the, the uh, mental twist can come in. And it says we constantly remind ourselves we're no longer running the show. Why? Because I'm constantly trying to run the show. Self is constantly popping up, which is why I have to use the spiritual practice to depress self. So this is my personal experience. I finish, as I'm finishing up my step nine, I get really into step ten. Well, my step nine starts to dissipate because I'm starting to, I'm doing step 10s before I'm causing harm. I get really into step 11, and suddenly my step 10s dissipate because I'm not getting disturbed because I'm using that connection three times a day. But let me tell you, I unravel the same exact way. If I let up on my step 11, suddenly my step 10s start popping up because I'm getting disturbed. If I let up on my step 10s, suddenly my step 9s start popping up because now I'm starting to cause harm again. It's a daily, daily reprieve. So let's go into the chapter, Working with Others. On page 89, that first sentence, practical experience shows that nothing, nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with alcoholics. Do I want, 
immunity from drinking? Heck yeah. And intensive work means it's not convenient. So, and what I often hear is I flip these sentences sometimes. Practical experience shows that those who don't work with others don't stay sober. That is why I must work with others. And I am not going to go over the instructions in here because of, of, the, of the time period. So I'm going to skip to page 99 where it talks about that first full paragraph after they've seen tangible results. So once again, my family's not going to believe me unless I'm putting this practical program of action into action. That last sentence. But we must try to repair the damage immediately lest we pay the penalty with a spray. I cannot sit on, my, on the damage that I do. So let's go to page 101. Or actually, the bottom 100, it says, assuming we are spiritually fit. And once again, that's very specific in, in, in the big book. That means I've put down the food, I've worked through all 12 steps, and I've had a spiritual awakening. And if that has happened, I, I can go anywhere on this earth. I can go to weddings, I can go to parties, I can go to all-you-can-eat buffets if I have a reason to be there. If I'm not there... If you are in the process, if you are trying to get abstinent, yeah, don't go to those places. You don't have a defense against that first drink. You need to protect your abstinence at all costs. But if you've had a spiritual awakening, it's saying at the top of 101, that first paragraph, we meet these conditions every day. An alcoholic who cannot meet them still has an alcoholic mind. There is something the matter with his spiritual status. So I just want to challenge people that, that still feel they have to avoid people, places, and things, still have to feel that they avoid their triggers. I beg of you, don't settle for that. If that's your reality and you're okay with it, fine. But let me tell you, if you work this spiritual program of action, you do not need to do that. And if I, for me personally, one of the flags for me is if I start to notice smells, I don't notice smells. If I start to notice smells, what happens to me is I know there's something the matter with my spiritual status because it can't be the allergy. I haven't ingested those foods in almost seven years. So it's a reminder, a little tap on my shoulder. Hey, Kim, you're starting to, to drift from me. Get back into those spiritual practices. And then they're letting us know on the top of page 102, when we go into these situations, it says go or stay away, whatever seems best, but be sure you're on solid spiritual ground, meaning you've gone through steps 1 through 12, you're actively engaged in 10, 11, and 12. Before you start, and even if, do not think of what you will get out of an occasion, think of what you will bring to it. But here's the warning again. If you are shaky, you had better work with another alcoholic instead. There is throughout this book, the solution over and over again is when I am, when I am feeling shaky, I need to go out and work with another alcoholic. So I want to end with two things. One is I did the OA waltz for years. Steps one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And the result was always one, two, three, relapse. One, two, three, relapse. But now I do the, I do the waltz of the big book. Steps 10, 11, 12, 10, 11, 12, 10, 11, 12. And for the last almost seven years, I have lived happy, I've lived joyous, and I live free. And I'm going to end with this because I found out something last night that made this talk more urgent for me. The quote I gave in the beginning from my spiritual mentor, this gentleman from Philadelphia, Chris, at his side was this amazing woman. And she's 15 years younger than me. And when I first went to this AA meeting, over 100 people, I didn't introduce myself. They asked people to do that. I did not because I'm not an alcoholic. This woman came up and 
found me because she knew I was new and offered me help. And I embarrassingly admit, I'm really sorry, but I'm not an alcoholic. I am a compulsive overeater who needs this. That my areas needing are weak. And I need this solution. And that woman helped me. She helped me. She, helped, she has helped hundreds and hundreds of women in Philadelphia. She knows this book better than any person I know. She has told me the hard truth because she cared about my life more than she cared about my feelings. She has led meetings and large groups throughout the Philadelphia area. She takes message to recovery house after recovery house. She is a spiritual giant in my life. And I found out last night that she picked up. And I ache for her. And yet it is another dog roll. It's another obvious warning that this is a daily reprieve. That this path works 100% of the time if we work it 100% of the time. And none of us is above picking up. None of us is above these warnings. We cannot rest on our morals. And I beg of you to... Heed these warnings and live this life which is available to every single person on this line. And with that, I pass. Thank you so much, Kim, for this beautiful, helpful, and informative presentation this morning. Kim's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. We're going to now transition into a question and answer segment if you have a question for Kim, you'll need to press star 1 to unmute. Please identify yourself by first name and the first letter of your last name. Who has a question? Elaine T. Elaine T. Ginger C. Ginger C. Karen M. Karen M. Laura G. And Laura G. Excellent. Elaine T., go right ahead with your question. Hi, this is Elaine T. from Pennsylvania, a gratefully recovered compulsive overeater just for today. I really don't have a question, but I felt compelled to thank him. Even though she goes so fast, it was hard to follow. I'm a new sponsor, and I'm working um, a a program, um, this program of action, and I appreciated everything she said, and um, I tried to keep up, and I thank you so much. And that's with that I pass. Thank you, Elaine. And Ginger, see your question, please. Sir, one to unmute, Ginger. Hi, good morning, Ginger C. Recovered in Colorado. Thank you so much, Kim. And I just have a question regarding the 11 steps sought through prayer and meditation. And if you could just elaborate a little bit more what that looks for you um, with your daily practice. Thanks, Ginger. You know, I want to answer this in a more global way because that's such a common question. And I know you're recovered, Ginger, but a lot of people ask that who are in the beginning parts of the step because I don't know about you guys, but, you know, give me the degree and maybe I'll take some classes. Um, So wherever you are in the book, my suggestion is pause and be in that part of the book. If you're in step one, pause in one of those step one chapters. Listen to a podcast. Call people with your questions. If you're in step four, make sure that you're spending daily work leaning into that step four. If you're doing your amends, don't rest on them. Spend daily thinking about what you can do to amends. Go out and make amends. You know, for me, step 11 is my daily contact with God. I really take seriously a morning routine and evening routine and pausing throughout the day. 
The big book says make use of what spiritual teachers have to offer. This is where we get to play. This is where we get to look at different practices outside of, of, of the big book. So this is when we can ask people, what authors are you reading? What spiritual practices are you doing? Some people get more engaged with their childhood religion. Some people get exposed to other religions. I personally consider myself a spiritual mutt. I'll take any spiritual practice if it works for me. So my suggestion to people is try on different spiritual practices, including, including not in lieu of, but including these step 11 practices. And if they're working for you, continue. If they don't, you know, maybe try a new one. I, I was doing a spiritual practice for about a year. I started to feel disconnected from it, and I picked up another spiritual practice. I don't think it matters what you do. I think it matters that you do it. Because we can have the most beautiful spiritual practice, but if we don't do it on a daily basis, we're not going to get the benefit. And I hope that answers your question. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Ginger. Karen M., star one to unmute. Hi, this is Karen from Florida. Can you hear me? Yes, very well. Awesome. Um, I was just wondering where I could find the three, the prayers. I think you said sick man, relationships, and fear. And then you also said that you had three inventories. Okay, if you go into the chapter, how it works. Which one are you calling me first, the prayers or the? No, I'm, 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 tell, I'm telling you in general. So the okay. four, all, the, all the four step instructions are from page 64 to 71, which is the second half of how it works. So there's the first um, section is going to be the, um, the uh, resentment, which is pages 64 to 67. And on the top of page 67 is what's called the sick man's prayer. That's the prayer for the resentment. The end of 67 through the end of 68 is the fear inventory. And that third paragraph down on 68 is our fear prayer. We ask God to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. Pages 68 through, um, six through 70 is the sex conduct prayers, and sex conduct inventory. And there are three prayers in there. Like I said, when I get into 10 and 11, they're no longer sex conduct. There are, they are relationship prayers. So just to okay. summarize, we ask God to mold our ideals and help us live up to them. We ask God what we should do in each specific manner, and we earnestly pray for the right ideals for guidance in each questionable situation. And those are prayers that we utilize in our Step 10 practices as we continue to grow in, in understanding and effectiveness. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks, Karen. Laura G., star one to unmute. Laura G. Are you hearing me? Yes. Thank you so much for your service, Leia. Um, and Kim G. And everybody that's on the line, I'm Laura G., a compulsive overeater. And um, and she answered my questions um, because they were already asked. So thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. Who else has a question for Kim? This is Vicki B. Lisa J. Hi, and this is this is Jasmine A. Marjorie G. 
Helen L. Okay, I missed a couple. I have Lisa B., Jasmine A., Marjorie, Helen L. Who was prior to Lisa B.? Julie Vicky M. B. Julie. Lisa J. Lisa J. Julie, who else am I missing? Vicky B. There we go. Okay, Thanks. excellent. Julie, go right ahead. Everybody else mute, please. Thanks. Hi, this is Julie M., recovered in Colorado. Thank you so much, Kim. Um, <clears throat> my question is about you said that we have to continually be going through inventories. So as a recovered person who's sponsoring, um, how do you go do you go back through I know that when we do a step ten we're doing many other steps as well, but do you go back through your own fourth step deep? Do you um do you do an inventory on a specific issue that comes up? That's my question. Thanks. Thanks, Julie. I think this is sometimes where we get into semantics because some people say, well, no, I only do 10, 10s and 11s. And some people say, no, I go back and I do a, you know, I go back and do four through nine. I'm very results oriented. So whatever brings you freedom to me, they're just saying take a regular inventory. For, for me personally, the way I think about it is step 10 is when I'm getting disturbed and I need relief right there. In step 11, I'm looking at the patterns. So I'm able to go back and look at, oh, my goodness, I'm having that same step 10 over and over again, and maybe I will go back and I will do some more investigative work like that. Um, so it, it, there's many opportunities to do that. I don't, the way that I approach the fourth step with my sponsees is the same way I approach step 10, is that I tell them this is not about a history of your life. This is not about trying to remember the kid in third grade that teased you who you haven't thought about since fifth grade. This is about what is taking up rent in your head for free that's blocking you from access to your higher power. So whatever is disturbing you at the time is what you do the inventory with. I'm not looking for problems. And this is just, like, again, my own experience. I'm a Catholic school kid, and, and we had to go to confession every Friday in, like, in grammar school. And I remember like first, second, third grade like making up sins because I felt like I had to, had to have something to say. And I remember one time even hitting my brother so I would have something to confess. So I'm not trying to make stuff up that isn't there, but if I, I need to acknowledge what is there because those are the things that are going to block me from my higher power. So whether you say it's a, a 10 and 11, whether you say it's a 4 through 9, whether you say it's a more in-depth 10, 11 on, a, on the issue that's bothering you, whatever it is, as long as you're doing the work and getting the experience of freedom, go for it. Thank you. Thanks, Julie M. Lisa J, star one to unmute. Okay, this is Lisa J. Can I be heard? Yes. All right, thank you so much, Kim. Oh my goodness, this was so helpful. I love the way that you walked through the steps and that you gave such significant references to the big book. I always appreciate that. And um, so my question is, I have a sponsee that is struggling to get to step one. Okay, so I'll say she's in step zero and in and out of abstinence. Uh, so maybe if you could just give shed some light on abstinence because I know there are some moments, even though I'm not eating my alcoholic food, when I find myself eating and 
you know, I'll, I'll have that mental blank spot when I'm eating. And I know that when I'm finished eating that it doesn't feel like it was abstinent eating because I wasn't fully present or I was eating maybe with an emotion that I hadn't yet dealt with through the steps. Could you address abstinence in that perspective? Sure. You know, I heard the visual once, you know, I don't want to jump off the cliff, but I sure like the view from the top. And what I find is that people want to try to find the outermost limit of their abstinence in order to get what they, you know, get some sort of effect. So the, the doctor's opinion says many women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. So I have to identify all those things that create the effect. And we are a fellowship. We're challenged and we're blessed that my alcoholic foods may not be your alcoholic foods. A lot of ours overlap, but we do have differences. So I have to be rigorously honest. That's why the doctor's opinion to me is so essential. And for me personally, the way that I look approach it is, I approach the doctor's opinion like Bill and Evie's kitchen table conversation where Bill is actively drinking and Evie's trying to bring him a message. So when I take someone through the doctor's opinion, I assume they're still eating. Now, whether they're eating by accident because they don't know what their abstinence is or they're outright eating because they're just, they just don't have the ability to put the food down, whatever that is. I bring them through the doctor's opinion. We get real clear, black and white abstinence. This is your ingredients. These are your foods and these are your behaviors. And once again, this is for me personally. I have them write it at the end of the doctor's opinion. So at the end of the day, when they say, I'm not sure if I broke my abstinence or not, we say, go to, go to that page. Did you engage in those foods, those ingredients, or those behaviors? If you have, you have succumbed to the desire again. And some of that might need to be fine-tuned. Now, what I mean by that is nothing ever comes off because once it causes an effect, it's always going to cause an effect. But there might be some foods, ingredients, or behaviors that maybe you weren't leaning on because you were so leaning on your main stuff that you're starting to realize, uh-oh, I'm getting that effect, which is why it's so essential we teach the effects so that somebody can identify that effect. Once the food um, gets, I love the way Leia puts it, once the food gets too sexy, it has to be eliminated. Because I know that feeling. I know when I see a guy that kind of like I get butterflies. I can't explain why it happens, but I know that feeling. And I know what the effect is for me. So if I am going for that effect, it needs to be eliminated. So the way, the simplest way I heard it is, I cannot get the effect from the steps if I'm still getting the effect from the food. And that's why abstinence needs to be black and white. Now, just to address your first question, I'm just going to read from page 96. I'm in sponsoring. It says, do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you have to offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced he cannot recover by himself. So I don't think this is a sure and fast rule in the sense every time I'm working with someone that they pick up, I get into meditation with my higher power and I ask, can I be helpful to this person? Can I be useful? Am I feeding my ego because I don't want to let this person go? Because I find I cannot convince anyone to, to take the steps. I do not want to get in the way of someone's step one experience. The food is what's going to convince them, not me. And if I'm getting in the way of that, I am delaying that by propping them up. And I'm going to end with this, this, this visual. My mom, my grandfather was an active alcoholic until the day he died, never went to AA. 
And I remember in high school asking my mom, did Grandpa ever try to stop drinking? And my mother laughed. And she said, Kim, when I was growing up, my mom's one of four girls, every time my father would come home, my mother would wake us four girls up, we would go into the bushes, we'd pull him out of the bushes, if he threw up on himself, we'd clean him up, we'd put him in bed, and every day he woke up in clean white sheets. Why would he ever stop drinking? Am I doing that? Am I, for my own ego reasons, propping people up to allow them not to hit their step one experience so they can recover? And I hope that was helpful. Thank, Thank you. you. That Lisa. was powerful. Thank you, Lisa J. Vicki D. Star one to unmute. Hi, sorry. Good morning, Vicki D. Hi, Kim. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much. I'm recovering, almost recovered, I suppose. I'm serious, deadly compulsive overeater. My question is for step nine, I mean, have, have I missed something in the previous steps? If when I get to step nine, it's so loud, the panic, the fear, the anxiety, everything I ever ate over is just up to my throat. Did I miss something in the other steps? Is that normal for being at step nine and feeling that way? Yeah, that's my question. Well, I mean, I can't answer that question for you. Specifically, you have to answer that for yourself. But I can tell you that the reason there's so many warnings in step nine is because it's, it's overwhelming for everybody. And um, there's, other, there's another thing I love in step nine. They talk a lot about the posture of step nine, of, of how you go into it, and um, let me try to find it in here. I forget what page it's on. Uh, okay, so the bottom of 77, that um, second full paragraph, the last sentence, it says, we go to him in a helpful and forgiving spirit, confessing our former ill feeling and expressing our regret. I can't get to that posture unless I'm doing my four-step prayers. You see, because if I'm not doing those four-step prayers of the sick man prayer, the fear prayer, and those relationship prayers, I'm not going in a helpful and forgiving spirit. I want that person to apologize to me and admit where they're wrong. It is not a former ill feeling. It's a current ill feeling. Mm. And I'm not, the only regret I have is that I have to do this freaking amends. So when we land in step nine, it, it is, we need to dive into it, but we need to be using those processes and that's why it's so essential in step five for us to see our patterns, to see how we show up. Because what I'm making the men for is that fourth column. And if I'm not clear on that fourth column where I'm selfish, where I'm dishonest, I'm self-seeking, I'm frightened, the amends is just overwhelming and kind of ambiguous. So my suggestion to you is really look at those, those pages that describe the ninth step. This is Kim's opinion, but I, I always made up index cards and had the person's name, and I had the, the, my fourth column written on there. So I understood what my amends were for, and I would bring that into prayer and meditation of how this amends should happen. You know, using lives of recovered people, but how do I make this approach? How do I, you know, all those different nuances that are in a step nine. Um, but nobody wants to make a step nine, but understand that the freedom is on the other side of it. Honestly, I don't want to do the steps. I don't want to get up in the morning listening to Vision for You. I, don't, I would rather be doing other things than spending an hour and a half every night working with people. But I understand what I suffer from, and because of that, I do the steps 
um, vigorously, consistently, and honestly, joyfully, because I know where I'm, who I am and what I'll go back to. Mm, thank you so much. Always amazing to hear you. Thanks. Thanks, Vicki. Lisa B., your question, please. Star one to unmute Lisa B. Um, good morning, Leah. My question was asked, so I passed. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Jasmine A. Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Jasmine A. Um, I this is my very first um, OA meeting. And um, I noticed a big, I, I was in another 12-step program for um, compulsively overeating. Um, had a big, serious problem. And um, it was suggested to me by someone to check out an OA meeting to see if this was a good fit. And so far, it sounds very um, right on the money I mean, in terms of it, it close to home. And I don't know where to even start. I know I need help. I need a sponsor. I need, I, I, I don't, I just need help. I'm willing to surrender to the fact that I am powerless over my food addiction. And um, I just don't know where to begin. I have no idea. And that's my question. I just don't know where to begin. But I need help in, in, in a huge way. Um, thank you. Thank you, Jess, and, and uh, welcome, welcome. Um, the fact that you don't know what to do is a great place to be, absolutely great place to be. Um, I can make some suggestions to you. Uh, this, this phone meeting, if you're interested in doing some phone meeting work, we meet every morning at 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. That's recorded. But at the end of that recording, when the recording goes off at 8 a.m., you can introduce yourself as a newcomer. And I can, you know, basically guarantee you'll get tons of phone calls. At that end of that second hour at 8:50 a.m., there are going to be people who are going to announce themselves as available sponsors, so you can do that. The other thing I greatly suggest is those step one chapters are essential, and we have a plethora of um, recordings on our website. If you go into the special editions tab, um, what I suggest you do is search for uh, step one, if you can go into the search feature because there's tons of recordings there. You can search for doctor, you know, I would put opinion in there and you'll get all the doctor opinion readings. If you put in um, uh, alcoholism, you'll get more of the, all, the, all the alcoholism recordings. Put in bill, you'll get a couple bill stories recordings. If you put in solution, you'll get a couple there's a solution recordings. And start to listen. Start to see if you identify in Write down some questions that you have from the recordings, and then um, we're, we're redoing our membership website thing. So on Monday, it'll be actually blank tomorrow morning, and people will start putting their names in there. But start calling some recovered people. Um, and this is just another thing for me. A lot of, we, there's a group of people that tend to consistently share on that 7 a.m. meeting, and sometimes people focus in on those personalities, which I understand. I did the same thing. Um, but if you call them, don't limit yourself to the people that share. If you like the way someone shares, call them up. Ask them who their sponsees are. Ask them who their spiritual mentors are. 
Start to build up a, a fellowship around you. Hopefully one of them will turn into a sponsor relationship, but you need that support. It takes a village to keep me recovered. It, keeps a vill- it takes a village to help us recover. But you know, we are very um, blessed that we have a lot of resources. But I would start in with the doctor's opinion and introducing yourself, um, if you can, sometime during this week, and you'll get some phone calls. Okay. Thank you so much. I, I just need I, I, I need to, um, you know, I have a lot of weight to lose, and that's what I'm, you know, I was always discouraged that um, OA was not the one for me because of the fact that I have a lot more weight to lose, you know, a larger number. Welcome and, um, to you. Welcome to you, Jasmine. You're in the right place, and we look forward to uh, getting your contact information. So thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. And Marjorie G., your turn to our one-time mute with your question, please. Good morning. This is Marjorie G., recovered in New Mexico, food food addict, compulsive overeater. My question has to do with the specific behaviors I might or the specific behaviors that you find helpful in dealing with the step for dropouts. I apply the principles from working with others, and I I let them go, and I let them know that the door is open um, should they want to continue to work the steps. And very few of them do come back, but my stance is always the door is open. I feel dreadful when eventually I go to their memorial services, and that has happened. What are some of the specific ways that you behave toward the dropouts in order to be encouraging, in order to let them know that it is possible for them to recover? Thanks, Marjorie. I'm going to read something from page 95 and working with others. There's... um, a section that says if he's not interested, if he is sincerely interested, and if he thinks he can do the job another way. But the one, if he is sincerely interested, it kind of gives us a warning in here about that too. It says if he is sincerely interested and wants to see you again, ask him to read this book in the interval. After doing that, he must decide for himself whether he wants to go on. He should not be pushed or prodded by you, his wife, or his friends. If he is to find God, the desire must come from within. So I have to, the, the daily challenge I have on a daily basis is to quit playing God, especially in sponsoring. But what I find for myself is that this book has a momentum to him. When I fully internalize step one, I am, and I know I'm powerless, I'm propelled to need a power, to want a power in step two. When I really want that power in step two, I'm propelled to make a decision to, um, to go through with the rest of the work. When I fully understand what life is like when I'm in charge in step three, I'm propelled to do steps four through nine. So for me, the key to step four, in all honesty, is to make sure that I fully go over steps one through three. 
make sure that they're feeling that urgency. If they're not, there's nothing I can do about it. Now, for me personally, again, is not, I always like to say when it's my personal opinion and experience. When I start them with the four-step instructions, we make an appointment for the fifth step at that appointment. I usually try to keep people in a four-step maybe seven to ten days because it is uncomfortable. The longer they're in a four-step, the more likely they are to pick up. And I find, just like I'm, I'm, I'm a Catholic, I could give up chocolate during Lent because I knew on Easter there was that Easter basket at the end, and that allowed me to not have the chocolate. So if someone knows, okay, starting this fourth step, I'm really uncomfortable, but on 10 days from now, I'm going to get to, I'm going to, get to unload that fourth step. It seems to help a little bit. But I have to understand that I am not their higher power. I, I'm trying to assist them to get with a higher power, but I'm not their higher power. So I don't personalize it. And I don't push or pride because if I push or pride, they're going to resent me. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, that is just the reality of our disease. A lot of people want this, as Harlan always says, but a lot of people aren't willing to do it. Um, and what the, the good news is, though, Marjorie, is that regardless of people go through with the work, you're going to get the benefit. I am grateful to every single phone conversation, every single person I've worked with whether or not they received it. And I had to tell you my arrogance is I want to be the one to watch them recover. That's my arrogance. Maybe the experience they had with you is going to help them reach a new experience with step one and they're going to go on to another teacher and they're going to recover. I've seen that so many times. I used to resent it in the beginning <laughs> and now I absolutely celebrate it when I see someone falter with me and then hear them on the line or see them in a meeting because they found another teacher and they recovered. Thank that you. That absolutely helps. Thank you, Kim. Thanks, Marjorie. And our final question today comes from Helen L. Star one to unmute. Leah, can you hear me? I hear you. Oh, thank you, Leah. <laughs> Sure. Hey, Kim. This is Helen from Pembroke, uh, Canada. Um, thanks so much for your talk. I've I've gone to one of your treats up here in Toronto, in Ontario, and um, my previous question was asked and answered, but you brought up another issue that I'd really like clarification on. I've been in twelve-step uh, rooms for about seven and a half years, and. Um, you know, I'm trying, I really like to be honest. I've worked the 12 steps in a number of ways, and I really love this way. I've been listening to Vision for You for about uh, a year, but can you characterize for me, because this is different, can you characterize with me what you mean by the effect has food for you? I've never binged, but I've never really been peaceful either in the food. Um, can you just Give a few more descriptors, if you if you could, of what what the effect of food is for for you. Thank you. Thanks, Helen. Um, just just sort of a little reminder that remember, just vision for you is simply an Overeaters Anonymous meeting. Um, we are people that love the big book. There is no such thing as a vision for you way of doing the steps. A vision for you sponsor. Um, the big book is what we're united on, and any we're just an example of a healthy. Overeaters Anonymous meeting. Um, the, the, the effect is, is absolutely crucial. You know, to me, it's that idea that I cannot um, get satisfied. 
It's I have one or two of something, and my body starts to, sh- to stimulate. It starts to get excited. Um, I'll give you I'll give you a couple examples. Um, I I I, I'm, I live alone. I eat very repetitively just because it's easier, and, I, and food is not I mean, my entertainment anymore. But I do try to get some variety in just for health. So I was in a um, grocery store that one of those gourmet grocery stores, and they had something called Pharos, and I didn't know what it was. And one of my allergic foods is is um, is uh, flour. So I asked if it was a flour product. They said no, it was a Middle Eastern green. They give me a list of what all the ingredients are to make this pharos. None of it included my, uh, you know, allergic substances. I came home. I, I personally weigh and measure because one of my effects is volume. So I weighed and measured my four ounces. I sat down. I had it. It was it was pleasant. I'm like, oh, okay, here's another starch I can put in my my routine. And then within 20, 30 minutes, my body felt a little itchy. My eyes started to dart around the room. I started to wonder when dinner was. And I was like, holy crap, something, is it, something was Farris. I never had it before. Don't know what it was. But I could tell that my body was reacting differently to it. So I went into the refrigerator and I threw out the rest of the Farris. I've never had it again. Now, it wasn't a break in my abstinence because I never knew I had a, you know, a reaction to Farris. But I could, I, since I understand what the effect is, I was able to eliminate it. So that's why it's so essential we know what the effect is. Another example um, is I absolutely love my oatmeal in the morning. You know, even when I go on vacation, I sometimes think, oh, I can't wait till I'm going to have my oatmeal. I thoroughly enjoy it. It satisfies me. And I don't think about it 10 minutes after. I don't think about it until the next day when I make it and I enjoy it again. That is a food that I do not get an effect from. So we have to think about what are those foods that we barter, negotiate, or that we're going to grieve over. What are those behaviors that get us charged up, excited, and not satisfied? And any of those things create the effect. So I'm going to give you one more example. After I was abstinent for a while, I started to notice that I was putting peanuts in everything. And when I put peanuts in my oatmeal, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, something's going on here. So I started to look at, you know, I'm getting an effect in this. I am, I am looking forward to anything that has peanuts in it way too much. I started to notice it was the same thing with cashews and with pistachios. Now, I don't want anything to block me from my higher power. So I made the decision, I'm not going to have any nuts. I'm not going through the mental gymnastics of saying, well, maybe it's almond, or maybe it's, maybe it's pecan. My... My recovery and my connection to higher power is so important to me that I just made a decision not to have any nuts. So that's that's the, the, the clarity we have to have, is that we have to look at what are those things that we get, our body gets charged up, excited, can't get satisfied, I'm negotiating if it's this way, well, maybe if I have it in a whole grain, maybe if I have it in a restaurant, maybe if I have it this way, oh, my God, I'm going to die if I don't have it. Those are all examples of the effect. And that idea of sexiness, I really like, too. Because once again, I walk into a room of 50 guys. I know which guys are going to, you know, frost my cookies. I can't explain it. I didn't make a decision about it, but I know it. What are those foods when you go into a grocery store? You're at an all-you-can-eat buffet that you get a little charged up, a little excited, a little tingly. What are those foods that you have in your cart that you haven't even tasted yet, but all of a sudden you're looking in the aisle and wondering how fast you can get through the grocery line because you can't wait till you get home and you can open up that bag or that box or something. Those are the foods that create the effect. I hope that is, uh, was helpful to you, Helen. Uh, Kim, helpful and humorous. Thank you.
Thanks, Helen. Thanks to everybody who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Kim, for your help this morning and your consistently generous spirit on A Vision for You. Let's close from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.